0: Welcome to Port Hostage Diplomacy. We work to free hostages and the unjustly detained around the world. Together with their families, we share their stories every week and let you know how you can help bring them home. I'm Darren Nair and I've had the honor of campaigning with many of these families for years. These are some of the most courageous and resilient people among us. People who have never given up hope. People who will never stop working to reunite their families. And we will be right there by their side until their loved ones are back home. Thank you for joining us. And now let's meet this week's guest. Jonathan Franks is a crisis management consultant for families of Americans held hostage or wrongfully imprisoned overseas. Jonathan has worked with the family of former U.S. Marine, Andrew Tamoresi, held in Mexico former U.S. Marine ame Hikmati, held in Iran, as well as U.S. Navy veteran, Michael White, also held in Iran. All these men have now been freed and are back home in the United States. Jonathan is currently working with the family of a former U.S. Marine from Texas, Trevor Reed, who has been held in Russia for over two years. We had the honor of interviewing Trevor Reed's parents, Joey and Paula Reed. Please do check out this episode on any podcast app or on our website, Port Hostage Diplomacy. Dot com. Today, we have the honor of speaking to Jonathan himself. Jonathan, thank you for all that you do for the families of Americans held hostage and wrongfully detained overseas. It's great to be able to speak to you today. Thank you for joining us.
1: Well, thanks for having me, Darren, and, you know, thank you for providing this forum to families. It's been incredibly helpful.
0: You're welcome. It's an honor to help, and I'm sure you know this too. Can you please walk us through the type of work you do for the families with loved ones held hostage or wrongfully detained overseas?
1: Sure, I, I think a lot of the work that we do for families relates to uh, messaging, message strategy, campaign strategy, um, and you know how to deal with the U.S. bureaucracy because you know all these families come to the table with different skill sets, different expertise. And I've yet to meet one yet whose expertise lied in government affairs or media relations, um, and you know. So I think it can be it can be frustrating for families, and sometimes just sort of need a a third ear or a guide um, to help them through these processes. That if they had insurance or lots of money, they would be paying somebody to help them with.
0: That's absolutely true. They're just going about their own personal lives, uh, not doing anything wrong, and then they get taken hostage or wrongfully detained, and suddenly they have to figure all these things out. You were previously a staff member within the U.S. House of Representatives. Can you please talk to us about your background, specifically the path you chose that led you to the type of work that you do today?
1: I actually started my work in the House when I was a junior in high school as a page, a program that unfortunately doesn't exist anymore. And then came back as an intern in the cloakroom, which is on the House floor, and then ended up going to be a, becoming a leadership staff. Or after taking a brief break to uh, you know see if I wanted to you know do law, um, so. I made it back, um, in, I think mid 2006, um, and stayed a couple of years before I moved to California and, and, you know, in search of some warmer weather.
0: So how do you go from there to what you do right now, which is working with the families of Americans held hostage overseas. And from what I read out at the beginning, they're all also veterans.
1: They are. And we started this, um, you know, one of my clients is Montel Williams, the talk show host. And in, I can't remember what year it was, but, you know, we uh, started hearing about a Marine that was, you know, with PTSD that had made a wrong turn in San Diego and ended up in Mexico, uh, uh, you know, and accidentally, uh, you know, so and, and with a gun in his car. Uh, and it, it just went on. It was so obvious that he had, um, you know, A, really honestly made a wrong turn. And then B, you know, you know, his PTSD was profound at the time, right? And he's doing much better now. But, you know, we got involved in that case. And then as we were, um, Andrew had gotten out one day in October of that year and flying back to Florida with him, we all sort of were sitting on the airplane saying, you know, hey, there's a Marine in Iran, and let's see if we can help him too. Um, and so we joined up with a team that was already working on, on Amir's case and doing a great job. Um, and eventually, Amir came home. Um, and sort of Michael White came into my life, um, courtesy of Amir. And uh, uh, Michael, you know, in no small part thanks to COVID, um, got out in you know um, June of 2020. Um, And literally, you know, in the weeks before Michael got out, I had started working with the Reed family who, um, you know, obviously a a very difficult situation and one uh, that is made more difficult by the ongoing crisis.
0: Absolutely. And I think in Michael's case, he had cancer, right? He was on chemotherapy. Correct. Now,
1: I will admit, right, after the fact, Michael was in a lot better health than any of us expected. I'm still baffled. I mean, keep in mind, he still had a chemo port installed in his chest. And, you know, the, the guy is, I, you know, he's a walking miracle. I, it it boggles my mind how he walked out of that situation doing as well as he did.
0: How is he doing today? He's
1: doing great. I hear from Michael all the time. Um, he is a, Michael's a very bright guy, right? I think he um, has gotten knocked by people that have heard the Cliff Snows version of his story that he just up and went to Iran to meet a woman. And, you know, kind of, um, Michael's a real smart guy and, and has a lot of interesting thoughts about a lot of things and he's got a mind that never stops. And I, I, you know, um, he's also got a fascinating story and and one that was written contemporaneously while he was in prison and, uh, you know, uh, message to any book publishers out there, it's, I've had the pleasure of reading it and it's, really good work. So I, I'm delighted to say he's, he's doing pretty well right now.
0: That's great to hear. Uh, I'm happy for him. And his mom, Joanna, right? That was her name? Joanne. Yes. And she
1: is, um, you know, back to being a grandma and a, you know, and, you know, caring for her horse and, and all the things that, you know, she should get to do, um, at, at her stage of life. And, you know, um, I'm incredibly proud of her, right? Like, you know, she has many skills, right? Is somebody who, I mean, if nothing else, I mean, this is a woman who has five kids, each of whom served and 100% of her kids, right? And, you know, um, that raising kids successfully like that isn't easy, right? And, you know, kids unfortunately don't come with a manual for what happens when they get kidnapped by a hostile foreign government. And, you know, she really, um, was hard for her. Um, we were of course because of his health consistently worried that he was going to die. And, you know, it turns out he, he, um, proved much more resilient than we had feared. Thank God. And, you know, as cancer free today. Uh, Um, yeah, I think Joanne is now able to sit back and say, all right, all my kids are okay. And that, that's really what's in it for me.
0: I'm happy for her and her family. Now, you're working with the family of Trevor Reed. Uh, I interviewed his parents, Joey and Paula. Uh, it was my second episode. Now, for our listeners who aren't aware of Trevor Reed's case, can you just give them an overview of Trevor?
1: Sure. Trevor is a now 30-year-old Marine, um, former Marine. He he served honorably. Uh, in fact, he's, he as we tell people, he was no ordinary Marine. He was a presidential guard Marine. Uh, he had a Yankee White clearance. I mean, this is arguably the most elite unit in the core. And, you know, um, after getting out, he was going to college, like so many folks do after they get out of the service. And, um, you know, he met a girl, she happens to be Russian. Um, you know, she had spent some summers with them in Texas. He had spent some holidays in in, in Russia with her family. And, you know, he was going to spend the summer of that, that fateful summer, right, you know, and not even the whole summer, maybe two months in Russia, right, he, he was immersing himself in the Russian language, uh, which he was, you know, thought would sort of be helpful for his degree program at uh, the University of North Texas, um, and, you know, a couple nights before he was supposed to come home, he and his girlfriend were at a private party, I mean, this is not out at a bar, this is in somebody's house, right, right? Um, And they were toasting. Trevor's not a big drinker, right? They're toasting vodka. This is customary in Russia. keep in mind, you know, he had a Yankee white clearance, right? You don't get one of those unless you've lived your life almost entirely in between the lines. So he's not a big drinker. He had a couple shots, right? He didn't consume some reckless amount of alcohol. And as he was driving home, no, he wasn't driving. Let me make that clear. He was riding in the car um, and took ill and needed to stop for a moment, get some fresh air, and because they couldn't get him back in the car um, physically, the the women that were in the car with him called for for police assistance. It was a busy road, and you know they were supposed to take him to a hospital, right? A drunk tank, effectively, right? Instead, they took him to a police station. They discovered he was a marine asked his girlfriend for a bribe, right? And keep in mind, he got out of the police car not in handcuffs, he was housed for hours in the public lobby of the police station with no handcuffs, right? And then the FSB arrived and asked zero questions about the assault on a police officer that he would later be charged with. All the questions were about his service in the Marines. And quite frankly, you know, um, the assault, as has been aptly pointed out by Ambassador Sullivan, Just never took place, and obviously so, right? Proven with Russian traffic cameras. You know there were reporters and and, and embassy representatives in the room every day of the trial, right? Everybody, those who were there. There's an objective record of the evidence, and he was proven not guilty. And when you read the verdict, you know it's it's a lengthy verdict from the judge, right? It does not correspond to the evidence that was entered at trial. Right, their complaining witness in this trial to illustrate how ridiculous this is. Right, you know, said that he might have imagined the entire affair, which involved the claim that Trevor grabbed his arm from the back seat, causing the police car to almost run off the road, putting the officers in fear of their lives. Right, he testified he might have imagined it. How do you find somebody guilty after your complaining witness says, "I might have imagined the whole thing"? Right. Like, and that's, you know, there's reports everywhere that Trevor, there was laughter heard in the courtroom. It was first reported by ABC News and confirmed by others. Right. The judge laughed because the testimony, the officers changed his story so many times. He sort of, you know, was the the laughter equivalent of throwing up his hands in confusion. Right. And, you know, so there's no basis for Trevor Reed to have ever been found guilty, much less receive a prison sentence. And quite frankly, this was also sloppy that. On the Russian part, right, that they've charged him with a crime that cannot be committed if one is intoxicated. Trevor was suffering from alcohol poisoning, right? This is a crime that by Russian law itself, can't be committed by a drunk person, right And that's, that just um, it's one of the hallmarks of a wrongful detention, right A trial that makes no sense, right A trial in where the facts may be presented but are immediately disregarded. And you know, there was as Ambassador Sullivan said multiple times, there wasn't a shred of justice in that room. The whole trial was an affront to the
0: rule of law. I absolutely agree with you. I think one of the key red flags here is that why was someone who was brought to a police station because he was drunk uh, ends up getting interrogated by the FSB? How would that be possible? Why would, would the FSB be interrogating Trevor just because he's drunk?
1: I think the the the, the, the storyline is that the FSB. Is often notified of 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 the arrest of a foreigner, including may very well be the procedure, right? Um, But I think what's really telling is once the FSB got there, they weren't interrogating him about what he had allegedly done, right? They were interrogating him about his military service, and you know it's not a crime in Russia to have served in the American military. You have to disclose it on your visa application, which Trevor did. But there's no, there's it's not a crime, right? And what's there's absolute there's good evidence, right? Um, there's lots of testimony that he was a perfectly law-abiding citizen. Well, not citizen. You get my point. A perfectly law-abiding tourist in his time in Russia, right? Like he was legitimately interested in the Russian language. If you know, a fan of Russian culture. One of the one of the most cruel parts about this, and the most asinine parts about this, is they have um, effectively kidnapped and held hostage now for more than two years, as you say. The a guy who was a good customer. Right A tourist who came to their country, spent American dollars and went home and you know who had fallen in love with a really impressive Russian woman I mean she's just um you know she's she's spoken to me his girlfriend is a very impressive young woman and um you know this was it, it always see I always have told people that michael white's biggest crime and only crime was falling in love with Iran right and you know i'm not going to say trevor fell in love with russia but he was certainly extremely interested in russian history russian language russian culture right this is all fascinated him so i mean for one thing i think these wrongful detentions like this are bad for business right they're really bad for business and you know this is a relatively new thing for russia it almost seems to me that they've copied the iranian business model and tried to improve on it, right? And when they had – they they obviously got Paul Whelan first, right? That was a secret trial on secret evidence on wacky espionage charges, right? They realized that didn't go very well for them. So when it came time to, to, to grab another American, right, they charged him with an ordinary crime, right, an assault on a police officer while drunk, right, and one that they knew would make it difficult for – um American media and even the US government to respond appropriately because there would there would be a legitimate in anyone's mind okay 28 year old got drunk you know allegedly assaults a police officer it, it fits a narrative right and a stereotype that is out there and that was part of the genius of it right because then Trevor's faced with you know effectively proving a negative right like that he that he you know he didn't assault them and he's you know fortunately, Russian traffic cameras told a great, told the story and show very clearly that he was innocent.
0: Trevor is a good man. Um, he uh, he cares for his family. He cares for his country. That's why he wanted to serve in the Marine Corps after 9-11 happened. His father, Joey Reed, is also a Marine. He joined the Marine Corps. He did very well. He was an Eagle Scout before that. And he got selected to Guard the president of the United States of America. He was one of the Marines guarding President Obama. He cared about his partner in Russia and therefore he cared about the country she's from, uh, wanting to know more about her and her family. And that's the type of guy Trevor is. And like you we will be campaigning with his family until he comes back home. Now, given your experience campaigning for American families held overseas and the fact that many of them are now back home, what are the key points of advice you would give an American family with a loved one held hostage or wrongfully detained overseas in general and specifically when it comes to engaging with the media?
1: In general, I would I, I would tell any of these families that... Um, they can't help their loved one unless they keep, unless they keep themselves sane and healthy, right? And there's this temptation to um, let fear and dread overwhelm, right? And that doesn't do much to bring um, one's loved one home. So instead, um, you know, I often tell families, you know, go to the movies right go go do something normal right for a minute and breathe right cuz you could be in this for the long haul you could be in this for years right i mean we've got families that are 10 plus years now and you know in terms it's a general rule you families need to remember that both politicians and the media need constant reminders that your loved one exists right? It's not for lack of caring. Um, it's, it's part of what I call sort of an ADD universe that we live in where nobody can pay attention. You know, nobody has much of attention span anymore and, you know, things just aren't absorbed. So, um, it's really important to be persistent, right? And not just take an ignored email as, you know, a final answer. Um, and, remember that as you're doing this, right, like nobody in the media, no politician is going to fault you for wanting to shed light on your loved one's plight.
0: These politicians are human beings as well. Um, if it were, if they were in the same position, they'd probably be doing the same thing. Um, and the good ones understand that it part of being a politician, part of having the power means people are going to criticize you if you're not doing well, or if you do the wrong thing. And that comes with the job. And uh, good politicians understand that. So I believe when Secretary Blinken was first sworn into office, um, a few days later, he had a call with the families of Americans held hostage and wrongfully detained overseas. And he openly said this, feel free to criticize us if we're doing something wrong. I think I think it was Paula Reed, Travis mum, that mentioned that in a CNN interview. He said she, it was it was a refreshing change um, that this administration was willing to be honest and transparent. Um, but and that's great progress, not perfection. But at the end of the day, results matter, and we need to bring these Americans home now. For our listeners, Trevor Reed is not the only American and former U.S. Marine held in Russia. Paul Whelan is an American citizen and former U.S. Marine who has been wrongfully detained in Russia since 28 December 2018. Yi's family have been campaigning tirelessly to free him and bring him back home to Michigan. There is currently no official playbook that offers guidance to American families working to free their loved ones unjustly held overseas. The Whelan family have taken the initiative and created a set of resources for other American families based on their own experience. It includes advice on engaging with the media, and you can access these resources for free on their website, freepaulwieland.com, and go to the section title Hostage Resources. Paul's family have been campaigning with Trevor's family. We've interviewed Paul's sister, Elizabeth Whelan on this podcast twice. So check out our previous episodes to find out how you can help Free Paul Wheelan too. Now, while we're talking about advice for families, I want to bring up the Free Nazanin campaign. Our first ever episode was with Richard Ratcliffe. His wife Nazanin Zahari Ratcliffe, has been held hostage in Iran since 3rd April 2016. Richard said you cannot rely on the media to tell your story. You have to tell your story yourself. Richard started out by creating a petition on Change.org where he describes what happened to Nazanin. This petition was then shared with as many people as possible through email and social media. Every time someone signs that petition, they are given the option of receiving email updates on the Free Nazanin campaign. As of today, this petition has 3.7 million signatures. I say again, 3.7 million signatures. That means every time Richard Ratcliffe sends out a petition update, it potentially gets sent to 3.7 million million people. Anyone who is familiar with campaigning, especially political campaigns, will agree that one of the most powerful tools you can have is the ability to get your message out in full directly to the public. So what Richard has done here with the help of change.org is create this amazing organizing tool that is helping him lead a global campaign to free his wife held hostage in Iran. Jonathan, as someone who engages with the media frequently, what are your thoughts on this approach? On
1: Richard's approach, I, I completely agree with Richard. And I think Richard has been incredibly effective. It's, it's Nazanin's story is just infuriating. Um, and um, I think that social media matters these days, right? It matters to autocracies a lot um, and perhaps even more so than one might expect. Um, and I think having a presence and, and using channels like that, and I'd include change in that because it is in theory, a social media platform, but, um, anything you can do, right. I would, I would, one of the first things I would do these, if, if I were one of my loved ones, right. Is start building an email list. You're going to need it. And there are free ways to do that. Um, You Um, Google Forms, I mean, Microsoft has a competitor. There there, there are ways to do this, right? And you just, repetition matters, right? You, you share it every couple of days, right? Get people signing up. Um, and also, don't be afraid to start fundraising right out of the gate, right? Because one thing that goes along is a common thread between all these families, right? Is these these cases are financially devastating. And while there are plenty of us consultants here in America willing to help, right, um, yet to meet a foreign attorney, right, in one of these countries that does show trials and hostage-taking of Americans that doesn't want to be paid cash. And, you know, why not start early? Um, And, again, same kind of deal, as, as you just mentioned, with change, GoFundMe has the same function in the sense that everybody that donates or um, interacts with the campaign has the option to join the mailing list and receive updates. And I think it's a really powerful
0: tool. Absolutely agree with you. Thank you to change the org for creating this and thank you to Richard for showing other families how it's done. Um, obviously there are many ways to go about this. Richard's approach is one example. Now you mentioned there that a campaign to free your loved one is a marathon, not a sprint. Um, and financially it can be devastating, right? So I know like the Free Nazanin campaign for instance, uh, has been fortunate to have many helpers, uh, lawyers, consultants, media consultants. I mean, Richard leads the campaign. He writes all the press releases. He's a phenomenal writer, great campaigner. And they've got support from pro bono lawyers. It also helps that Nazanin worked for Thomson Reuters Foundation, even though she herself was not a journalist, she was a project manager. Now, Going back to the key point here that campaigns like this can be financially devastating. On this specific point, what kind of support do you think the government should provide for for families financially? Because I interviewed Veronica vidal Wagerman. Her father, Tomio Vidal, is an American citizen wrongfully imprisoned in Venezuela since November, 2017. He was arrested with five of his colleagues and they all worked for U.S. oil company Citgo. Within a few months, the company stopped, within a few months of them being arrested, the company stopped paying their salaries. So where, where was the family going to get the money? Most of these men were the main providers for, the fam- for their families. So I spoke to Veronica about the government possibly providing more support, including financial support to these families. What are your thoughts?
1: I think it's good. Should the government provide this support? Absolutely. No question. Can the U.S. government provide that support? Probably not. And um, I have frequently thought about what it would take to create a nonprofit to fill that void. Um, but it's a huge void. Personally, I think that you know we have 50 or 60 families, right? So if the U.S. government spent $100,000 on each family in a year, assuming it's 50 families, There's $5 million. We can afford that. But, you know, it's never been done. Government doesn't do stuff it's never done before very well. And, you know, I think the odds of the US government ever providing that kind of direct financial
0: assistance to families is near zero. It's unfortunate, but true. Uh, That's why NGOs like Hostage US have been filling this void. They've been doing phenomenal work. I know they've helped families needed to pay the mortgage, they needed to pay rent by finding volunteer benefactors, people who are willing to give them a loan um, to cover the mortgage, to cover the rent. So at the moment, because the US government isn't providing this support, NGOs, volunteers are having to do this. Now, the next point is on appearance. I know a family member of a hostage who told me that he was advised to always wear a suit and tie while giving media interviews. The reason for this was to appear as a professional. Now, whether we like it or not, many people are going to form an opinion of us by the way we look by the way we dress. Now, what advice would you give families when it comes to appearance on camera? Be cognizant of it.
1: And they're, they're, you know, um, there, there are good tips on, on, on what to wear, how to wear it, where to wear it like online that, that you you know, one can Google. Um, I think dress like you're going out to dinner and you know, it's, it's not, there, there's a fine line, right. Between, you know, what I would call, you know, smart business attire and formal attire. right. Nobody needs to wear a tuxedo or an evening gown on TV. Um, but you know, I don't think it's the worst idea in the
0: world to wear a suit. I would do the same as well if I was in that position
1: I think what's really what what's really important there is it's i don't think it's as much about whether you're wearing you know what color your suit is you know what kind of dress you wear I, I I don't think it's as much about that. What matters these days is is are you compelling on television right so the biggest thing families ought to do right is breathe, right? If you get it's natural, you go on TV, you're on camera, the bright lights pointed at you. You know, um, it's easy to get carried away, right? You start talking fast, you you get off message, right? And that that's often how train wrecks on television start. So the extent you can just sort of take a deep breath and be you, right? And remember, you know, it's a hard reality, right? You have to tell people all the time, right? Is nobody cares. Nobody's interested in like a bullet point recitation of facts, right? Nobody's interested in, um, you know, run on answers, right? Um, short and sweet, right? You have a message you want to deliver, you stay on it and you don't move, right? You don't get sidetracked by off wall questions, right? Um, you don't get sidetracked if the host, clearly doesn't know what they're talking about and ask the question completely wrong, just gently correct them and move on, right? And the more cool, calm, and collected you can be, the better you will be on TV and let some emotion go, right? Makes great television and it'll make them more likely to bring you back. Right. And unfortunately, you have to look at TV appearances, right? These are not, these networks are not doing these for the goodness of their heart, right? They're doing it because they think the segmental rate. And, you know, um, tell them who your loved one is. Tell them what they're missing back home, right? Whelan's have been very effective putting out pictures of Paul's dog, right? I think that's been a very effective message that they've had, right? Um, We like to tell people in Trevor's case and kind of illustrate to folks that this is two years of his life he's never going to get back. A very, very promising young life, right? With plans and a future and, you know, somebody for whom all the pieces were literally coming together right to get to his American dream. And then, you know, it gets taken away one night by a couple of half-baked cops in Moscow. And the pathway home has been longer and windier than we expected.
0: I agree with you. Uh, As you said at the beginning, an important thing family members have to do is uh, stay healthy. And um, David Whelan mentions this in his guidance, uh, Paul Whelan's twin brother. He says that, when you're going through this trauma, it's hard to keep up your energy levels. So when you're doing back to back media interviews, you have to come across as energetic and convey your message, like uh, in an authentic manner, even though you are exhausted, even though this is, I mean, this is, it's so tiring to talk about this trauma, reliving it again and again. Uh, so it's important to keep your energy levels up. And like you said, come across as authentic. You hear this in politics all the time. Uh, I like this guy because he seems like he's authentic. He says it as it is. Same thing with the families of hostages. Be authentic. Uh, they're not expecting you to be a subject matter expert in geopolitics.
1: That right. There, stop, I'll stop you right there. That one is key, right? and I think there's this temptation when you get into one of these situations, right to take on expertise that one doesn't have, right and nobody's having you on to be an expert in American foreign policy or right you're on to tell them about their lo- your loved one, right They have people that can deal in the foreign policy analysis after you're done, right And you know I always tell folks any time you're talking and you're not talking about who your loved one is. And what is waiting for them back home, right? You're wasting an opportunity.
0: Absolutely. You also touched on the point of message discipline, having a single message. So when you're running a public campaign to free your loved one held hostage overseas, it's pretty similar to being someone running a single issue political campaign. This single issue being free your loved one. You're going to need support from as many people as possible, as many politicians as possible, and these people aren't all going to vote the same way. They're not all going to think the same way. Politics in the media today are very polarizing, so you have to stay on message. You have to focus on that single issue. It can be tempting to comment on other issues, especially when you have many influential journalists and politicians following your campaign. Some of these politicians, journalists, and activists may even ask you about other issues, but you have to stay on message. You have one message and one message alone, free your loved one, bring them home. Now, I think David Wheeler mentions this as well, uh, journalists might try to bait you. To get a quote, to get a story, what would you recommend to families on this one?
1: If you're not comfortable giving a comment, don't give a comment, right? And uh, the minute you start talking to a journalist, right, you have to assume that what you say is going to end up in print. And if you're not sure what you want to say, don't engage and they'll wait. And if they don't wait, there'll be others that will be ready when you are. And so don't let them push you into things, right? Remember, you are providing them something of value on which they are going to make money, right? The whole purpose of journalism, right, is to, you know, at least on a business sense, right, is, is, is to make money off of that content, right? Either through ads, um, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it, it's just the business model, right? So when you go on, you're doing them a favor, Are they helping your campaign? Absolutely, right? But they need content. You have content, right? And in a sense there, there's a marriage of convenience. And I think one other thing to remember, right? Is that the objective here, right? You've got to remember these folks are not, um, got to be very careful about befriending journalists. And um, that may not go over very well, with my journalist friends, but, right, families have no leverage in that relationship, right? And I'm not suggesting anybody would, you know, but I've watched people, you know, journalists burn hostages and families, right? It it happens with some frequency, and sometimes it's intentional, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's flat out ignorance or arrogance on the part of the reporter, right? But got to remember, they're not your friends, right? They're people with a job to do, and they're very, very, very effective at getting information. Right. So remember that you hold the cards and you set the boundaries. And quite frankly, nothing. There's oftentimes this panic that sets in when families get a media request. Right. There's no obligation to respond to a media request instantly. Right. There's no obligation to respond to one at all. Right. They're the media. They're not the, they're, they're not a court. Right. You know, they're, they they can't compel you to answer their questions. And, you know, if they um, push you to, d- to do or say something that you don't want to do, say no. Right. And then same advice I would give to a criminal defendant. Right. That, that had just gotten arrested at the side of the road. Right. Don't say a word. Right. In that situation. And you ignore everything the police officer says after you invoke your rights because they're allowed to lie. Right. same deal with journalists, (laughs) right? Um, if you're not comfortable, say no and hold your ground.
0: Agreed. Now the next point is also very important. Tone. When you campaign to free your loved one, always start with a hopeful message. One focused on love campaigns that use hope-based communications tend to unify people, not divide them. These unifying campaigns are ones that attract the most supporters. The most volunteers that campaign with you, giving you the opportunity to take a knee while someone else stands guard. Negative campaigns, for example, ones that criticize the leaders in charge may get a lot of publicity, but whether you like it or not, these same leaders you're criticizing are the ones that have to sign off on your loved one's release. It is it is absolutely fine to criticize leaders that do something wrong or don't do enough, but don't ever criticize them in bad faith. What's your experience with this?
1: Honestly, I I am one who takes sort of a non-traditional approach to this, right? I think families criticizing government officials can be extremely effective. And we are currently in the US at this spot where I think our government needs to make up its mind on what it's gonna do about these cases, right? It's been a year and a month, right? these folks are very smart. Just ask them. They'll tell you. They're very smart. It shouldn't take a year to make such a simple decision. And it's time for words to stop and actions to start, right? And that is, I I do think it's important to make fact-based criticisms, right? It it is um, not helpful to, you know, um, you can't run a in the same sense that you can't manage immigration, fit immigration policy on a baseball cap, you also can't fit a strategy to re- get a hostage back to the United States on a red baseball cap, right? This is all very complicated, right? And your communication should reflect that complexity, right? A lot of the times, right, we communicate the right we're at lockstep behind the career officials that are doing the work, right, every day. I think occasionally. Right, there are criticisms of political decision makers at a high level that you know I think are fair. Um, and I think unfortunately in the United States, one thing that does move the government is talking to them in the media and um doing so in a very careful and strategic way, but it works right. And sometimes when you're not being listened to, right, one of the ways to be listened to by the government is to establish proof, right. That if the government doesn't listen to you, you'll just simply elevate, right, the message in the press to the point where they have to listen to you, and that is a very effective strategy. But it has to be done cold, right? This is not something to do in anger with a bunch of emotion, right? This is, you know, it's it, it is a um, something to be done in cold blood and after a lot of strategic thinking.
0: That's true. Again criticizing the government, absolutely fine. Saying they're not doing enough, saying they're not doing the right thing, absolutely fine. As long as you do it in a way where it's in good faith and not in bad faith, that's fine. You don't want, you don't want to be dismissed as a partisan doing this, uh, as if you're trying to score points for the opposition party. Um, as a family member campaigning to free your loved one, as I said at the beginning, you have to remain nonpartisan. Now, the next point is one which is, unfortunately, it's, it's the state of the world we live in today. So anyone who has lived life long enough will be able to tell you that there are many reasons why life is unfair. One of them is racism and racial stereotyping. If you are an ethnic minority and have a loved one held hostage or wrongfully detained overseas, it is going to be harder for you to get the same media coverage as someone who is not an ethnic minority. As I said, this is the state of the world we live in today. It's wrong, it's unjust, and it has to change. But change takes a lot of time and your loved one currently held hostage can't wait for institutionalized racism to be resolved. I've seen some families experience this and get very angry. I've seen them call out politicians and the media as racist for not giving them the same attention they would otherwise give another family who wasn't an ethnic minority. In the six years I've been campaigning with hostage families, I've not seen this approach yield any positive results. I've seen other families who have experienced this same discrimination, take a different approach where they focus on what we all have in common. Love for family, the right to travel safely and freely to other countries, the right to be protected by our government when we are taken hostage or wrongfully detained solely because of our passports, not because of anything we did as individuals. These approaches have been a lot more successful in many cases. As a person of color, myself living in Britain, these are the approaches I would recommend. From your side over in the United States, Jonathan, what are your thoughts?
1: I think it is absolutely the case that it is harder for people of color, right? I think there's better data that it's harder for people of color in child kidnapping cases, right? But I think you can extrapolate that to these these wrongful detentions, right? And obviously, I have worked for families that are non-white, um, and I think. There were challenges, but but I have to say, um, you know, one of those non-white families spent a lot of time on Fox News, right? And my issues with that network, notwithstanding, right? I was really impressed and and, and even inspired by how the Fox audience responded, and you know, so I would also um, suggest to folks, right? Um, it's not all about racism, right? Some of it is about the ADD universe that we live in, right? And, you know, reporters and bookers and producers that are just, you know, that are trying to make effectively a reality show out of the news, right? And um, be persistent and keep sharing your message, stand your ground, right? The fact that a couple of people on Twitter don't like what you say is irrelevant. They're probably not even real people, right? Like, I mean, I attract trolls just going to sleep at night. Right. It's so automated these days that when you get any attention at all, you're gonna get trolled. Just ignore them. Block them, hide their comments, block them. Move on and you know, move on into the light. Right. There's just no um what I often say to families. Right, because there were some horrible things in the comment pages, right, and my thing to him was, don't read the comment pages. When's the last time you, as a productive member of society decided to go to an article, right, go through the login process and post some sort of nasty comment right We are not dealing with the the cream of the crop of society on the comment pages on any web page on the internet, and you know. Stand your ground, you know, I don't know that calling the media racist is a particularly effective tactic, but I think reminding them, you know, that your loved one's an American too, is not a bad idea, right? And, you know, I work with veterans, so in none of my cases, right, was there much question about the patriotism of the detainee? Right. And one thing that you should not do, right, is dignify stupidity with like, you know, made up nonsense that is just completely untrue about your loved one that pops up on Twitter. Right. Um, you know, if if it doesn't even, if it's not even true, there's not a lot. And my somebody with, you know, 13 followers posts, you know, something wacky, just move on. Right. It's hard to do, but just move on. And you know, I do think the media needs to do a better job focusing on some of these cases. I mean, there's 25 Americans that are all non-white in hanging out in Kuwait on drug charges that range from asinine to fabricated. Right. And this is a country that, let's be honest, exists because of the sacrifice of a lot of American men and women. So, you know, nobody except one long-form writer has written that story, right? It's not hard to get in touch with these guys. They WhatsApp, so you know it. It, um, it is that case in particular, right? Twenty-five mostly black contractors, right, all with military pedigrees, in a Kuwaiti prison for wackadoodle drug charges, right, that may or may not be real, and no one's listening.
0: In your case, it's pretty unique because. These individuals are also veterans, but they have to, they have to jump through hoops to prove that they are as American as others. And this is obviously a long conversation and it's something that's not going to be resolved anytime soon. So if you're a family member in this situation, focus on what you need to do right now in the short term, get your loved one home, and then we can work on tackling these institutionalized Issues that are going to take a long time to resolve. And you also bring up one important point. Uh, don't respond to stupid comments. I have seen, I have seen families responding to these comments on Twitter. Individuals that might just be bots, might be trolls. Don't, from my experience, don't give them the oxygen. I, I know some families that, um, respond to these or quote tweet them because they have a strategy in mind and others, they just get angry and they just respond. So yeah, I absolutely agree with what you say. Don't give them oxygen. Focus on your message, message discipline, maintain your mental health and your focus. Now, based on your experience working with hostage families, what should the US government be doing to bring people home?
1: Real easy one at the moment, right? I suspect, I don't know this, but I suspect, That the US government has yet to make a policy decision about whether it is willing to use the same kind of tools the Trump and Obama Biden administration used to bring people home. And I think that's why we've only seen one case resolved by this administration since it took office. And, you know, it is tempting to get stuck in the Harvard and Yale debating societies and sit in an ivory tower. And debate. You know, there's these solutions to these cases are messy and they're politically unpopular and they're messy. And, you know, at this point, right, we've got to do something, right? And then not only do we have to make this policy decision and decide to, you know, bring our people home, we then need to take a policy decision about how to punish all of the foreign nationals that were involved in these hostage take. And there's clear authority under the Levinson Act to do that, and I think you've heard from a lot of families recently a desire for a more robust response from the U.S. government. I call it throwing an elbow. The more diplomatic way to say it is a more robust response. I'm not. We're not talking about hurting anyone. We're not talking about violating anyone' human rights. Um, we're simply talking about using the levers of power that the U.S. possesses to exert pressure. Right. It's Bizarre to me that we have a American sitting in a country like Rwanda, right? Allegedly very friendly to the United States, right? And you know it's even more bizarre to to learn that their government was using Pegasus to spy on his daughter, right? And that the Rwandan embassy in Washington was spying on his son who was in class in Texas in university. I think it's bizarre behavior for a country that has been a beneficiary of The generosity of American taxpayers for a long time. Right. And we have to decide as a country, right. And I think the UK sits in the same spot what we're willing to do to bring our people home. And are we willing to continue playing make believe with some of these folks, right, out there in the world, like the Saudis, for instance, um, who are not only taking hostages, but openly torturing people, right? And, you know, People that engage in hostage diplomacy, autocrats, these are people that don't care what the consequences of their actions are and, you know, really don't have any principle or integrity. So um, it has always struck me as a little bit farcical to treat thugs, right, like they're diplomats. And I think we need to be much tougher on people like the judges involved in these scams um you know the prosecutors the police officers um the elected officials right the people we need to deny them quarter in what i would call the you know um democratic first world right and that's a tough decision to take and one that we haven't been willing to take so far and thus the reason we continue to have Americans taken hostage i think also it would help tremendously if Americans would stop going to such high risk places right going to russia right now as an american is silly right and you know i'm sitting here in february right thinking of american spring break next month in march right and the number of american families that with seeming total disregard for the risk, right? Send their American teenagers in 20 somethings to go get drunk and be obnoxious in somebody else's country for a week or two, right? And then invariably, some percentage of them find themselves afoul of some complex legal systems, right? I don't have a whole lot of regard for the legal processes in Mexico, having lived that with a client that. It that it's a system that's in need of incredible modernization, and one where I'm wondering where the billions the U.S. invested in the Mexican legal system over the last couple of decades where that went. Um, this is not a place that I would be sending my teenagers or college age kids. Um, and consider this: rather than sending your kids to Mexico or the Dominican or Aruba or um, places where we know things have happened to American kids. Send them to the Virgin Islands. We have lovely U.S. Virgin Islands that are American soil in the Caribbean. Send them to Puerto Rico. American soil, right? Um, that's, I think, we've got, there's this tendency as an American to think that we can walk the world, you know, as if we were in the, you know, early Roman Empire, right? The citizen of Rome can walk the whole world, you know, the the face of the earth unharmed, right? Like, it, 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 it is... We're not Rome. And we have not been willing to use that kind of power on people, even illegitimate actors like the Burmese UNTA, right? We have not been willing to use power that the United States has to punish these folks for hostage taking. And until we do, Americans, I think the same is true for citizens of the United Kingdom, um, probably true for the citizens of any G7 country, right? Like, are appealing targets. And until our governments, it's wonderful that they all had you know signed a declaration on arbitrary detention. That's lovely, right? The people involved in arbitrary detention don't live in flowery diplomatic language, right? They live in thuggery. So in a sense, until we start punishing these folks, I don't have a lot of hope that it's going to stop. And I can't think of the last time we punished somebody severely who was involved in a wrongful detention right with all kinds of authority right you have no right as a foreign national to come to this country right there can be bans for life on entering this country visa bans things that we do all the time to people who steal money right but we're unwilling to do it for people that st- literally steal americans pluck them off the street and i'd like to see the us government throwing some elbows right and rendering a fairly significant consequences to To everybody involved in these, I'd like some judges in these countries who go along and rubber stamp these sham trials to have the fear of God in them. That if they go along with this, right, and railroad, right, there's nowhere in the free first world that they're going to be able to go. Nowhere, right? And I think that'll make people think twice.
0: I agree with you that there has to be a consequence uh, for hostage taking. How it's implemented, however, needs needs a lot more debate. For instance, um, there are many families of Americans and Brits and people from other countries that travel to Iran because they have family members that are very ill. Even some family members who are dying and they want to see them before they're gone. So I know at least two or three That were taken hostage in Iran because they went there to visit their dying mother or their dying father.
1: Or grandmother in my client, Amir Hekmani's case, right? Although she wasn't dying, but he was visiting his grandmother.
0: Yeah. So I understand, I understand why they went to visit uh, and why they were willing to take that risk. So saying they cannot travel to a specific country makes it very difficult.
1: Oh, I don't, I don't, I don't mean. I don't mean travel bans on them going to Iran, right? I mean, I would like to ban everyone in the Iranian judiciary that has a role in these things from ever traveling to the United States or any of the G7 countries.
0: That's a good point. Um, I think with sanctions, uh, I think Magnitsky sanctions, they're going after the assets of individuals at a high level. The thing about countries like Iran, Russia, Rwanda, Myanmar, um, where else? China, is that a lot of these individuals are following orders. I understand it's not a good enough excuse. So they then get an order, you need to do so-and-so, you need to prosecute this individual. If you don't do it, you'll end up in prison right next to them. And we've seen some very brave lawyers in Iran, for instance, who've defended these foreign nationals and ended up in prison as well. Even prison has many lawyers of the defendants. And we've seen this in other countries as well. I know the US for instance, has travel advisory. So when I interviewed Trevor's family and Paul Whelan's family, I read out the US travel advisory. It says, uh, I think for Russia, it's level four, do not travel. It gives you comprehensive information on there on what is the risk, but more needs to be done to inform the public on the risks, because there are still many American businesses doing business. With these countries, there are many American businesses that want to do business with countries that we're currently sanctioning. So I think this needs a lot more debate. And you spoke about the American held in Rwanda. This is Paul Rusesabagina. He is the he received the U.S. Presidential Medal of Freedom. He saved one thousand two hundred lives during the Rwandan genocide. I interviewed his daughters, Kareen Kanimba and Anais Kanimba. Um, So if you want to listen to that episode and find out more, check out PorthosageDiplomacy.com or check it out on a podcast app. So yeah, absolutely. Rwanda is supposed to be an ally of the United States. In some articles they've said, uh, US is reluctant to pursue this because they need Rwanda as an ally in that region. From a counterterrorism perspective, the Rwandan president has been very cooperative with the US government, so they don't want to upset him. Hostage taking does not happen in a vacuum. There are a lot of things going on. Now, if you're a member of the public and you want to help families of hostages, you can do many things to help these families bring their loved ones home. First one, quite easy, sign their petition if they have one. Number two, write to your local politician calling for their release. Number three, follow the families on social media and share their stories with your friends and family. Don't underestimate how important it is to show these families that they're not alone, that there is a world of care out there. Like we mentioned at the beginning, it's very hard to keep up that energy, to keep going, especially if you think no one cares or that you're alone. So when families see that, There are many people who care that want to support them. It gives them the energy to keep going. The emotional aspect of this is very important and gets overlooked. So the emotional intelligence is important, especially given that we're coming out of a pandemic here, where mental health is definitely a big issue. It is very important for leaders of the United States government to talk about these individuals, use their names. It matters.
1: Let me can I pause you there one second, Darren, because you just said something that lights me up like a Christmas tree, right? Is you know, um, the difficulty. Although I have to say, I want to be very clear, the US government has gotten much, much, much better about saying the names. There's some great examples of that. The Trump administration was good about saying names, and so has the Biden administration been. The Obama-Biden administration. Left some significant room to improve on um, on that front, and I think government officials need to be clear, right, that there is nothing more offensive, right, than talking about somebody's loved one in the third person, right. They have a name. It's not a um, unnamed American Marine. Right. Or some of the other goofy things I've seen listed. Right. And, you know, for media folks out there, right. Heard, I've heard over the years a lot of second guessing of if a family tells you they want you to use the, their loved one's name, use their loved one's name. Right. There's no virtue in second guessing that decision. Right. And, you know, the US government over time has had reasoning in various cases, none of which I agreed with, right. Where saying the name doesn't make any sense right? They say, won't help. We'll get in the way. I wouldn't take that answer if I were a family member. I'd want the government saying my loved one's name constantly. It's just a respect thing and it's not that hard.
0: I agree with you. There is nothing more powerful than the president or prime minister of a country calling for your loved one's release, saying that they are wrongfully detained or they're being held hostage, that they are innocent. I mean, you can get all these Institutions, you can get all these journalists and media outlets saying the same thing, but the fact that leader of your country says you're innocent, that you're wrongfully detained and they're calling for your release and they will do what it takes, there is nothing more powerful than that apart from actually freeing them. Uh, So it's, yeah, it's very important to say their names. Now going back to what members of the public can do, uh, You can even write a letter to your local newspaper saying why this is important to you and what you think the government needs to do to bring this innocent American home. Politicians pay a lot of attention to local media. Don't underestimate how important local media is. So that's what you can do as a member of the public. Now, Jonathan, you've done great work for hostage families. If someone wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do so?
1: They can shoot me an email. I'm pretty easy to find. Um, you know, my email is Jonathan, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at lucid, L-U-C-I-D, com, And I'm really easy to find and shouldn't hesitate to reach out with questions.
0: That's great. So we're almost at the end of our interview. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about?
1: I think to the families of the Americans, Currently being held. We're at a time where our government needs a little help getting over the goal line on bringing Americans back. And it's never going to happen if one political side, right, is always lying in wait to make political hay out of the deals that have to be made to bring folks home. And it's not helpful, right? And I think there is an increasing unity in the Congress sort of for this work. Um, But I would say to families right now, right now is not a time to be silent, right? Right now is a time to raise your voices, make these stories known, and make clear to all of your elected officials, right, that you want this to be a priority and that you're upset that it hasn't been. And that only one hostage back in a year is not acceptable, right? And... You know, I think there's no question that the people that are working on these cases day to day have everyone's loved one's best interest at heart. No question to me, right? Sometimes I wonder about the very top of the political leadership, having the courage and the willingness to do what's right, even if it's not easy, like making deals to get bring back wrongfully detained Americans is not is, is is not going to cause one party or the other to win an election. It needs to be something that is above politics. And until we get there, we are going to have this problem. If we could all get on the same side of the table and say, there is nothing we're not willing to do to bring our people home, and there's nothing we're not willing to do to go after the people that are doing this. If we can get to that place, we're going to have a lot fewer folks taken, Right. One reason that this has exploded recently, right, in recent years is as division has increased and the ability to find unity has decreased. Actors, that's prime playing field for sort of two-bit thugs like Putin and Nicolas Maduro and some of these other folks that are playing hostage diplomacy. And keep raising your voices, right? Be respectful. Be calm and do it strategically, but don't, don't be put off to the side. And if you're not getting responses, it's time to make that clear. Don't take no for an answer, right? These folks job is to bring your loved ones home, right? They get paid government salary to do it, right? They're happy to engage, right? But the political leadership at the top has to be held accountable when it fails to bring folks home. And the list is now just too long to count.
0: Jonathan, thanks again for all that you do for the families of hostages and the wrongfully detained overseas.
1: And you, thank you.
0: You're welcome. It's an honor to help. We really appreciate you taking the time to speak to us. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Port Hostage Diplomacy. We're not just a podcast, we're a community. If you're on Twitter and would like to post a message of solidarity to the families or have any questions for us, please tweet it using the hashtag WhatHostageDiplomacy and we'll get back to you. If you like what we're trying to do, please do consider supporting the show financially. You can do this using the support the show link in the description of this podcast episode. We're grateful for any contributions, no matter how small. Thanks again for listening and we'll be back next week. Take care.